Hey, have you heard about our all-new free PDF that you can download? It's called Five Ways Unresolved Trauma May Be Derailing Your Relationship. And if you're a couple that has done the date nights and attended the relationship retreats and learned the communication skills, read the latest books on marriage, but you still find yourself stuck in a loop of pain and frustration, then this PDF is for you. If one moment everything is fine and the next moment everything feels crazy and that is familiar, I encourage you to go to restoringthesoul.com, scroll down, fill in your email, and get the free copy of our all-new PDF, Five Ways Unresolved Trauma May Be Derailing Your Relationship. You're going to find it very helpful. Most people feel like they read this and they wonder if we've been reading their mail. They say, this is us. It's going to be of help. Check it out now at restoringthesoul.com. Welcome to Restoring the Soul, a podcast dedicated to helping you close the gap from what you're meant to be and what keeps you from being all that. I'm your producer, Brian Beatty. Thanks for listening. Joining me once again from our studios in Denver, Colorado, your host, Michael John Cusick. Hey, man. Hey, Brian. I am so glad we're back doing another episode on Surfing for God. Yeah, this has been a great series. Uh, We're here at number seven in the series of podcasts about your book, uh, Surfing for God, Discovering the Divine Desire Beneath Sexual Struggle. What's been uh, some of the feedback uh, that you've heard of our previous episodes? How's it going? Well, I love getting feedback, and I think there's two themes. First of all, uh, people have been wanting me, unfortunately, it's been eight and a half years, but to to talk about surfing for God on the podcast and just have never done that. And, uh, very glad to have commentary and, and it's facilitating discussion around it. But the, the thing that it's not surprising, but it is surprising that people are writing saying, and it's, it's mostly women who are saying, I don't have a porn issue parentheses. Many, many women do have issues with porn, but they're saying, the podcast is something I listen to, and I almost thought I would tune out with this, but it's helping me understand compulsiveness with other issues. And, you know, across the board, people have said that whether it's eating issues, which I certainly have struggled with, or compulsive shopping or people-pleasing, all of the underlying issues are the same. So people are kind of getting that. And I'm glad because that was one of my intentions is that, yes, it's a book about my story. Therefore, it's a book about pornography and sexual addiction and compulsion. But they're really principles that are universal to what it means to be free. Hmm. So today we're talking about the idea that we do have good hearts, which can initially feel like it contradicts everything we've learned about our human nature. So. Michael, why did you choose to include a chapter on our good heart in Surfing for God? Well, I could do a whole uh, episode or longer just on that question, so I'll try to be brief. First of all, for myself, when I was in my addiction and when I was living out of my brokenness, you know, the, the constant refrain in my head was, you are a horrible sinner, you're disgusting, uh, nobody would love you if they really knew who you are. And you claim to love God, but you really don't. And so I had this verse 
that was always before me that I was taught as a young believer. And I think this is a foundation of a lot of teaching about who we are. And it's from Jeremiah 17, 9, that says, The heart is deceitful above all things and beyond cure. Who can understand it? Another translation says that the heart is desperately wicked. And people might be familiar with that. It's not just wicked, it's desperately wicked. And that's true in the Old Testament, and it's true in the Old Covenant, uh, which fundamentally means that, um, that people are still bent away from God, and that the law was an attempt to do things, to try to obey certain commands that would have been external, but not internal. And that it required a whole new operation, if you will, of the new covenant to allow a change to occur on the inside that would take us from being bent away from God to being bent toward God. And it fundamentally has to do with a change on the inside. So what do you mean when you speak and write about the fact that our hearts are indeed good? Well, I'll start with maybe the most uh, common scriptural reference. Um, and as a brand new Christian, I memorized this verse uh, shortly after coming to faith in Christ. 2 Corinthians 5.17 Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has gone and the new has come. And in my post sin, acting out, addictive moments, I would come to this verse and other verses and just pour over it. Okay, I'm a new creation. The old is gone. The new has come. Why Why am I still doing the things uh, that I don't want to be doing? And I couldn't figure it out. I didn't understand what it meant that I was a new creation. So this idea of new creation is rich and deep, and there are whole seminary semester-long courses on it, but the gist of it is that we've had a heart transplant, and that's how I describe it in Surfing for God. And in the New Testament, we see this idea that the good heart is really the reality and the foundation of the new covenant. And so at the Last Supper, as Jesus said, this is my body broken and my blood shed, he took the cup of wine and he lifted it and said, this is the cup of my blood. It's a new and everlasting covenant. And that covenant was, and covenant, by the way, is just an agreement. Like in my neighborhood, we have an HOA covenant. You know, we can't park uh, campers in front of our house for more than two days. And, you know, we can't paint our house neon pink. So covenant is an agreement or an arrangement and understanding. And so this new covenant that's in operation is based on Jesus' death, resurrection, his life, and his indwelling presence. The old covenant, and there were multiple covenants in the Old Testament, like the covenant that God made with Noah and Abraham and David, but when Jeremiah says that our hearts are desperately wicked, as I said, it's not just Old Testament, but Old Covenant. It's based on this arrangement that we align ourselves with God externally, that we move toward him externally, and this idea of the good heart is internal. And the, the primary passage for this is in Ezekiel chapter 36 and Jeremiah chapter 31. And there's a reference that says, you know, can a leopard change its spots? 
And the reference in Ezekiel to God taking a heart of stone and turning it to a heart of flesh. So I'd like to actually read this. And I'm reading from Ezekiel 36, 24 through 27. And some people may be going, you know, Ezekiel, that's kind of deep there in the Old Testament. And I wonder if this is just kind of an obscure thing. But again, um, Paul in Romans and Hebrews refers to this new covenant reality that really begins right here. And because this is Old Testament, these are words that God is speaking through this prophet, and it's a couple thousand years before Jesus lifted that cup and said, this is the blood of the new covenant. And listen to how specific this is. Verse 24, I will take you out of the nations and I will gather you from all the countries and bring you back into your own land. I will sprinkle clean water on you and you will be clean. I will cleanse you from all your impurities and from all your idols. I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit in you. I will remove from you your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit in you and move you to follow my decrees and be careful to keep my laws. Um, I've literally taught uh, eight-week course uh, at my church in the past, and I've, I've integrated this into classes I've taught at universities, and this this really, really can be unpacked. But, Brian, if I can, I'd like to just say that there's four things in this passage, and as you look at the idea of the new covenant, the new heart, and the fact that we're new creations in Christ, the old is gone, the new has come, there's four things in this passage that we need to pay attention to. Maybe five, and I'll say five. The first is in verse 24, God says, I'm going to take you out of the nations and bring you back. And part of that is geographical in terms of uh, Israel and Judah and wandering in uh, the desert for 40 years, and then how their nation was overthrown. But God is primarily speaking about this in terms of um, a sense of belonging. And so it's a sense of you will belong. You will have a home. And that home may be geographical, but the home is with me. It's the idea that Jesus talked about in John 15, that he is the vine, we're the branches. And there's this union, this togetherness, and not a separateness of living in two very different places and two different lands. But then we get into the meat of this passage in Ezekiel 36. And the first thing that happens is it says, I will sprinkle you with clean water and you'll be clean and I'll cleanse you from your impurities and your idols. God's saying, I'm giving you a purity. You don't have to become pure. I'm giving you a purity. And because surfing for God is, of course, about sexual brokenness, compulsion, and addiction, I can't speak about this without referring to what we're now calling purity culture. Uh, looking back into the uh, the 1990s and several books like I Kiss Dating Goodbye and, you know, other books that, that made purity this point. And if you sinned sexually and if you committed, quote, unquote, the worst sin as a believer of having premarital sex, that you were impure, that you looked at porn and you were impure. And men come to me all the time and they say, I want to work on my purity. And I say, um, I can't help you with that. 
oh, really? I thought you were an expert in, in sex addiction. Well, I, I kind of am, but the fact of the matter is you're already pure. And they look at me and they kind of, what? Oh, I, I know what you're talking about. It's one of those positional things, like positionally in Christ, I'm pure. No, you're already pure. At the core of your being, there is a union with God. There is a purity of heart that first and foremost doesn't mean the absence of contamination, but the presence of wholeness, the presence of wanting one thing, which is to love God, to walk in his ways, to align ourselves with him. And so purity has come to be understood as uh, an absence of contamination. And that's a part of what was in the Old Testament with the animal sacrifices and, and rituals. But our, our whole understanding has really been like a ladder leaning against the wrong wall. It goes on to say that in addition in this new covenant to giving you this, this purity, which is ontological, it's part of your being and who you are, I'm going to give you a new heart and put a new spirit in you. And so one writer, Dwight Edwards, in a little book called Revolution Within, said that, that God not just gives us a new purity, he gives us a new identity. And, you know, you can think about watching crime shows or stuff about how a person goes into the witness protection program and they get a whole new identity. And what this means for us is that our identity is as beloved sons and daughters, no longer slaves, as both Jesus and other New Testament writers make that contrast. So, so slaves have to obey and a son or daughter wants to obey, not just so that mom and dad give them the goodies, but because that's how life goes well. And so this idea of a new identity is that something fundamentally changes, and this is where it's so freeing in regard to shame and in regard to how we see ourselves, and that is that I no longer have to perform, achieve, follow the law. I no longer have to, quote, not sin in order to be beloved, seen, delighted in, uh, forgiven, and unconditionally loved. The third thing is a new nature. And so it says that as God removes from us our heart of stone and gives us this heart of flesh, he says that I will give you a new heart and a new spirit. And the word spirit there is with a small s. That there's a new purity, a new identity, but there's a new disposition a new um, proclivity, a new propensity, a new energy inside of us that is no longer primarily committed to self, self-preservation, self-protection, but an identity that now wants to live aligned with God. So we go from a place of saying, I, I won't be vulnerable, I won't have childlike trust and dependence, which is the posture of the, quote, sinful heart, to I will be vulnerable, I will have childlike trust, and I will allow you, God, to be the source of my security. So the idea of God giving us a new heart and a new spirit is this new nature, that deep within us there's a new nature 
that wants to love God instead of has to love God. The same author, Dwight Edwards, in Revolution Within, said that when we experience conversion, we go from living in the have-tos to the want-tos, and that's what the new nature is about. Finally, um, a new power. It says in the last verse here, God says, I will put my spirit in you, now with a capital S, and move you to follow my decrees and be careful to keep my laws. That there's this new purity, a new identity, a new nature, and then a power of the Holy Spirit that indwells within us that allows us to live this out. But it's allowing what's already there to begin to flow. Man, that's really, really good stuff. And who could think, you know, pulling out such rich lessons from the book of Ezekiel? Michael, I think it's time for us to take a uh, quick break, and uh, when we come back, uh, we'll talk about the implications of the fact that our hearts indeed are good and oriented toward God. You're listening to Restoring the Soul with Michael John Cusick. We'll be right back. Hey, it's Michael. In my life, I've battled addiction and even blew up my marriage. I experienced childhood abuse and lived for years with PTSD. And in all that, I've experienced incredible restoration and healing in my life and marriage. Now, my story is not your story, but there comes a moment for every one of us where we need something to change. At Restoring the Soul, we help couples heal their marriage. We help individuals restore their life and get their heart back. If you can't wait months or years to get unstuck and out of that rut you're in, our intensive counseling process in Colorado allows you to experience deep change, real breakthrough, and half-day blocks over two weeks. Finally, you can heal from your trauma, overcome those compulsive behaviors, or heal what's broken in your marriage so that you can live the life you're meant to live. Visit RestoringTheSoul.com. Welcome back to Restoring the Soul with Michael John Cusick. I'm your producer, Brian Beatty, and we are in the middle of uh, Chapter 8 of Surfing for God. Uh, This particular podcast is entitled Your Good Heart. And uh, before the break, Michael, you spoke about some really revolutionary ideas that uh, came from a passage in Ezekiel. Now, especially for someone struggling with a sexual compulsion or addiction as it relates to having a good heart, what are the implications of the fact that our hearts are indeed good and oriented toward God? Yeah, that's an important question because we don't want to just leave this as some kind of nice theological idea that hopefully sifts down into us. Uh, the first thing, Brian, is there's a book called Every Man's Battle, and uh, that, that that book is um, – I, I, I never want to just outright criticize another author who has really good intentions, but we we learned from that book, which came out 20, 25 years ago, that we are to battle against sin. So every man's battle is lust. And one of the things that's an implication of this new covenant and good heart reality is that we don't battle against sin in the new covenant as much as we battle for our hearts. I'll say that again. We don't battle against sin. We battle for our hearts. We fight for our heart and we fight for others' hearts as we as we love them. And a lot of how I define my vocation and calling in ministry is fighting for people's hearts and fighting for the heart of a marriage. 
And so, you know, somebody might say, well, what about scripture, you know, that says we should fight the good fight and resist sin? Of course, you know, that, that sometimes we need to flex our muscles and, and say, no, I'm not going to have an affair with that person in my office, or I'm not going to indulge certain fantasies, or I, I won't, uh, you know, binge on, on food. And at the very same time, those willpower kinds of decisions can't sustain us long term and they don't bring change on the inside. So what are we fighting for in the heart? And therefore, the second implication is that what we're fighting for is wholeness and wholeness, W-H-O-L-E-N-E-S-S and holiness, H-O-L-I-N-E-N-S, are really one in the same. One of the reasons why God is holy and unique, set apart, is because he is perfectly whole. Three persons, one substance, and in that Trinitarian reality, there is a unity, a a oneness and a wholeness that we are created in his image and meant to have that wholeness internally. There's an old book uh, by the spiritual writer and educator Parker Palmer, and the title is called Hidden Wholeness. And I believe that, that deep within every human being is the image of God. It's not just me who believes that. That's the teaching of the Bible. But that there's a hidden wholeness. And as Christians, the disparate, uh, broken, different parts of us the parts of us that we had to disown or relegate, that those can come together and we can be made whole. And so we're fighting for that wholeness because it's the absence of that wholeness and the brokenness is it's that part of us that moves away from God that says, I'm going to be independent, self-sufficient and meet my own needs. And so the reality finally is that there's a fallback position. And that might sound like a strange word, but the fallback position is that during the days of my addiction or now as I may be tempted with something that is destructive for me, the temptation, the craving feels so real. And yet there's always this fallback, deeper desire. And I'll say it again and again, but at any given moment when sin feels so attractive there's a deeper desire. And people say, okay, well, I just need to focus on that. And maybe in the moment of temptation, uh, try to somehow believe that deeper desire. That, that might be needed in certain instances. But as we do the soul work and as we do this healing, that, that desire is like the proverbial beach ball that when we push it underwater, it takes a lot of effort. And then we release that pressure and it just rises up. And so, this hidden wholeness and this this core desire to love God and to live aligned with his ways, uh, that that begins to rise up as we become whole and healthy persons. As we look to uh, conclude uh, this episode uh, today, Michael, I'd love to leave our listeners with some real practical advice and takeaways. Um, so how can we begin to live out uh, this thought in practice? Yeah, first of all, I would say to um, to consider if you have a concordance or if you um, have some Bible software on your smartphone to type in just this idea of the new covenant. 
and it, it, it can be really rich to understand. But in Ezekiel 36 in particular, uh, from the very beginning to verse 28, it unpacks this. And just to begin to think about what would it mean in my life if I was seeing myself as God sees me as already pure? And what does it mean if I, if I see not just that I'm pure like a piece of white cloth, that doesn't have a stain on it, but that purity is about a wholehearted desire that I want one thing. David in Psalm 27, four said, one thing I ask of the Lord, this is what I seek to gaze upon his beauty. That was a statement of purity. And so that what is it that I want? As Jesus asked, what I want is God. The man knocking on the brothel door is knocking for God, Chesterton said, and that's why I named my book Surfing for God. And to realize and begin to tell yourself there's something deeper. Uh, the second thing is to think about the metaphor of a faucet. Um, a lot of the listeners will be familiar with my quoting Dallas Willard talking about how most of how we understand the gospel today is a reduced gospel and not a gospel of restoration and transformation and really dynamically walking with God, but a gospel that is basically, I'm forgiven and now I have to manage my sin. And so Willard spoke about the gospel of sin management. And the analogy for sin management is here's this faucet, like the faucet on the side of a house or a building that we open and water comes out. With the sin management metaphor, the pipe behind the faucet goes to a cesspool or to a sewer. And so there's bad stuff coming out of the faucet, and our job as Christians is to close the faucet and to work as hard as we can. And there's this immense pressure in there, so it's hard to close. But then once we close it, the pressure, you know, turns the faucet and sewage continues to flow out. And that's how I saw the first 10 or 12 years of my Christian life, that, that I'm to manage my sin and turn the faucet off. Well, the new covenant teaches us that there is a spring of living water. John 7, Jeremiah chapter 2, God says, I'm that spring of living water. And then between that spring of living water and the faucet is this pipe that is like our heart. And the Christian life and living this new covenant is more about opening the faucet and letting the living water that's clean and pure and a new kind of water, letting that flow out as opposed to all of our energy clamping down. Now, here's the problem. People would say, well, how do I do that? The reason why the living water doesn't flow and seem like that's this inner reality is because between the reservoir of living water and the faucet, there's clogs, there's kinks in the pipe, uh, I have these trees in my backyard, and every try, time I try to stretch the hose to water these particular pinion trees, the hose gets kinked and the water doesn't flow. And what our brokenness is, is a combination of things that clog the pipe, that, that kink the, the hose, and either limits or prevents the flow of living water that allows our hearts to thrive and really overrides our compulsions and impulses to turn away from God to our own resources and therefore sin. Michael, has uh, the ministry put together any resources related to surfing for God that our listeners can find online? 
Yeah, listeners can go to surfingforgod.com where there's more information about the book. You can download a chapter, and very, very soon, the study guide for Surfing for God will be out. We've completed it. We're just uh, working with the printer right now, and hopefully that will be in a, within a couple of months. And as always, restoringthesoul.com to find out about our intensives where we work with people at a deep level to heal the sexual brokenness. Again, so let's go to surfingforgod.com. Michael, it's been a great uh, episode, another one for Surfing for God. Uh, What do we have to look forward to next time? We are going to be jumping into the chapter of my book about the invisible battle, and uh, that's all about spiritual warfare. And a lot of people get the heebie-jeebies or say, I don't want to talk about that. And we'll talk about it in a balanced way that I think will be really, really helpful for people to understand this, this often misunderstood component of fighting for our hearts. So thank you for listening to another episode of Restoring the Soul. We want you to know that Restoring the Soul is so much more than a podcast. What we're all about is helping couples and individuals get unstuck. You know how some people go to counseling or marriage therapy for months or even years and never really get anywhere? Our intensive programs help clients get unstuck in as little as two weeks. To learn more, visit RestoringTheSoul.com. That's RestoringTheSoul.com. Restoring the Soul.